Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we confess that it is in your light that we see light, that our minds are unable to discern spiritual truth unless it's given to us by you. And so as we approach this complicated, extraordinarily complex letter, we ask that your spirit would lead and guide us into the truth. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. It is with some fear and trepidation that we begin a new sermon series today. As many of you know, each week I spend a good amount of time reading and researching and writing on the works of the Genevan reformer John Calvin. He's something of my theological mentor from history. His method, his intuitions, his priorities, all of these have deeply impacted me. And typically, when I find myself in disagreement with Calvin or doing something that he didn't do, I check myself. It's interesting to note that Calvin wrote a commentary on almost every book in the New Testament except the short letters of 2nd and 3rd John and also on this letter, this letter to Revelation. He never preached on it. People have speculated why, but it's pretty easy probably to speculate as to the reasons he avoided it. It's difficult. Nonetheless, in our present circumstances, this letter called Revelation seems to have a particular word for us here in the church today. We live in a moment filled with political turmoil economic uncertainty, and social unrest. All of that is complicated by a global pandemic that hovers as a cloud above and around those other dynamics. And it is into those complicated and tumultuous circumstances that this letter was originally written. Seven churches in Asia Minor living in very harsh circumstances. And so Revelation has a particular word for us a word that speaks into our lives today. 
The letter is typically avoided because many people, including learned Bible commentators, don't know what to do with the visions and symbols woven throughout the book. What does it all mean? Commentators do offer wildly different interpretations. If you just bought any two commentaries, you would find the divergences. G.K. Chesterton once quipped, and though St. John saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his commentators. <laughs> it is a jungle out there. But as we approach these first eight verses that provide an introduction really to the entire letter, there are two important qualifications. First, this letter doesn't need to be complicated. In verse 3, we learn that those who hear, those who read, and those who keep this prophecy will be blessed. That is that God's intent is not to confuse us. This book has a simple but yet profound and pastoral point. God is not out to confuse us or vex us, but rather to bless us through the message found in these 22 chapters. And so we'll take that as a starting point, that God desires to bless us here. Second qualification is that this letter is addressed to you, the church. Frequently people understand that this letter is written to the church at the very end of the world. It's written to the church right before the return of Jesus and that it provides specific instructions about how events are going to unfold right at the cusp of that event. However, in verse 4, we note that this letter was written to historical churches, seven churches in Asia Minor. There were other churches there. Each of them are addressed in chapters 2 and 3, but it was into historical circumstances that this letter was spoken and written. But it's also important to note something else about those seven churches. Those seven churches in Asia Minor are not the only recipients. The book of Revelation is full of symbolism, and you'll find that the number of seven is deeply symbolic in all of Scripture, but especially in the book of Revelation. It's a number that stands for completion and fullness. And John employs that symbolic device here, addressing these seven churches, where part of the church stands in for the whole. And so he was addressing all the churches of Asia Minor because there were many others. And he is addressing all the churches scattered around the Mediterranean and even to the east. And he's addressing all the churches throughout time because a part stands in for the whole. And so this is not a word to some future Christians right on the cusp of Jesus' return. No, this is a word to them, then and there, in their circumstances. And it's a word here and now to you. And so God's intent is to bless us because this is a word for us. So what exactly does it offer though? And what is the blessing that God promises to give to us as we read, as we hear, and as we keep? Two things that we'll focus on this morning. First, the blessing that God promises is that it opens up a new perspective for us. 
The blessing this letter bestows on those who read and those who hear and those who keep it is tied to the type of literature that this letter is. It is a letter, but it is quite different than the other letters that we find in the New Testament. You find this difference even in the first words of verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The word revelation is significant here. It could also be translated apocalypse. And an apocalypse was a certain type of literature that was well known to first century Christians. In fact, it had been around for people of the book for many, many years. The book of Daniel is also considered an apocalypse. And you ask, well, what exactly is an apocalypse? I'm not familiar. It's fairly simple, but it involves a heavenly vision that's mediated by some type of angelic being. That's what an apocalypse is. And as you work through the book of Revelation, you find that there's vision upon vision. In chapters 4 and 5, we find an elaborate vision in which John is whisked out of the world in a heavenly vision, and he's taken into the throne room of God. But it's really important to understand what is happening there because John is not being taken out of the world to escape the here and now. What is happening is John enters into the throne room of God and he encounters the eternal realities of the Lord God Almighty who is and who was and is to come. As he experiences the Trinity there and is overwhelmed by the sight of all of this reality. But what John is encountering there is encountering the realities of heaven so that he will look back upon the earth from this heavenly perspective. He is swept into God's reality in order to gain perspective on earthly events. What does he see? He encounters the triune God, the one who is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And it is revealed that the Son, who was humiliated and suffered and died an embarrassing death on a cross, as he was shamed that this one was vindicated and has been raised, that he's the firstborn from the dead, we read in chapter 1, that he is the ruler of the kings on earth. And this is what John sees. He sees the reality of heaven, which is the reality behind all created reality. And he sees that even though the rulers of the earth don't recognize Jesus, though they don't bow their knees to him, though they don't recognize that they live in his inheritance, that the world belongs to King Jesus, that he won it in his death and in his resurrection when he defeated sin and evil and death, that Jesus is the world's true king. This is what John sees in chapters 4 and 5. And this is the new perspective that God opens for us, that he discloses in this letter. And in our crumbling and chaotic world with all of its anxieties and all of its uncertainties, this is what we desperately need. The understanding that Jesus Christ has not been toppled from his throne, that he's not up for re-election in a few short weeks. That it's not about voter turnout that we don't have to wring our hands about this, that Jesus doesn't abdicate his rule, he hasn't lost, he was victorious. And he is the one who's leading the church 
through all the tumultuous trials and troubles of a fallen world. And though the nations disagree, and though they plot, as we read in Psalm 2, it doesn't upset the reign of Jesus. This is the new perspective that is offered to us. And friends, during this season, we desperately need that vision to meditate upon it richly, to fill our minds with it. Because we can fill our minds with any number of things. We can fill our minds with the 24-hour news cycle. We can fill our minds watching the stock exchange index go up and down. We can fill our minds with anxious concerns about the infection rate of COVID-19. These things easily become the meditations of our heart that direct our thoughts and even direct the way that we live. We can also try to escape by focusing on other things. But what we desperately need is the meditations of our hearts to be focused upon this vision of Jesus Christ through all the trials and all the chaos to know that he is enthroned at the right hand of God and the reality behind all reality. The reality behind this created world is that Jesus is the true king, the ruler of the kings on earth, that he is triumphant. This is the new perspective on offer here in the book of Revelation. But second, this letter not only opens up a new perspective, but also a new horizon. In chapters 20 and 22, John is transported in a vision not simply to the throne room of God, but to the final future of the world. He does see things that are yet to be. And he sees there a vision of God's return. That is when our Lord Jesus brings two realities to bear on the fallen creation. The realities are judgment and salvation. In the Bible, these two always correspond with one another. That God, when he comes in judgment, he does so in order to bring salvation. That God comes, that our Lord Jesus comes and brings evil into judgment so that he can renew and purify the world. That Jesus brings evil into judgment because it doesn't belong in the good creation. And he's coming to vindicate and make things right, to burn off the dross of sin and evil and all of its impacts. To renew us as well. The impurities are gone so that the climatic reality of God dwelling with his people, as he did in the Garden of Eden, can once again be realized. The holy God is in communion with creation and with his people. The world is renewed through this purification. And John sees this. John sees a new horizon. He's given the perspective of Jesus upon the throne, and he's also given the horizon that Jesus will make all things right. And in the midst of the chaos and the uncertainty, we need to deeply meditate upon this vision as well. It is the substance of these visions that brings blessing into our life. And we want to fix our minds and our hearts upon these central realities that these are the truest things in the world. 
They're more certain than the futures of the stock market. They're more certain than the United States of America. They're more certain than any political party. That these are the things in which we invest our faith and we invest our lives. Several years ago, I was reading David McCullough's excellent book, 1776. It's a great read introducing you to the American Revolution. And as you read the book, it brings you particularly in contact with the fragility of the whole enterprise that was the revolution. At several points as I read, I found myself anxious, thinking there's no way this is going to work out. I know my history, but I was thinking, this is so backwards. How in the world were they ever successful in this venture? And I had to remind myself on several occasions, oh right, they won. <laughs> I know how this turned out. I don't have to sit here and sweat and lose sleep over this. And this is what the new horizon that the book of Revelation discloses to us, does for us. In the middle of our uncertainties, in the middle of our anxieties, we know that our Lord Jesus is on the throne and he will return in his good time. He will return and make everything right that the chaos and the turmoil will be quelled, that evil and the judgment of the nations will be ended, that life will be renewed, that dead bodies will be raised, that sin will be no more. Your divided heart will come to an end. And you'll commune with the living God. That's the horizon out in front of us. And what's particularly important for us to consider is exactly what this new perspective and new horizon, once they really become part of our lives, when we are filled with the meditation on these things, what exactly does it yield for us? And John provides an answer for us in the second half of verse 5. There's somewhat of an interruption after he extends grace and peace to the people from the triune God, the Father and the Spirit and the Son. He then launches into doxology to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. And this is what meditation upon this new perspective and this new horizon yields. Is it takes us into this place where there is confidence and there is praise. There is assurance and there is doxology because we're centered upon these heavenly realities that our Lord Jesus is enthroned at the right hand of God, ruling over the world, that the world answers to him, and that our Lord Jesus will make the world answer to him, that he will return and make all things right. This grants us the confidence because we belong to him. We don't belong to him because of our achievements and accomplishments. No, we belong to him because he loved us and he freed us from our sins by his blood, we are told. We have been made. That is not by our own choosing. We have been made. Something happened to us. We've been made a kingdom of priests. He's done that to you. 
We're assured of the future. That assurance doesn't lie in our achievements or our accomplishments either. But rather, it lies in the achievement and the accomplishment of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Jesus is the Alpha, and he is the Omega. One of the most fascinating things about the book of Revelation is that everything that is said about God the Father is said about God the Son. And here we have the language of Alpha and Omega in verse 8, and we find it at the very end of the book in chapter 22, applying to Jesus, that he assures the future, that the God who created all things, the mediator who was there before the world existed, that he is the one who will also make it right and bring it into new creation. That's the assurance of the future. And we see that all that assurance, all that confidence spills over into doxology. It floods us with praise. When my oldest son was first born, he was a fairly chunky little guy. There were rolls of fat everywhere. Substance beneath the chin and on his thighs. It was so cute. And I remember trying to be a diligent parent, really wanting to treat him so well and, to, and to, to be his father. And so one of the first duties that I had to take up was to give him a bath. And so I looked up on the internet what the temperature should be, filled up the tub several times, getting it just right. We were using the new bath that I had gotten uh, in, in, at the baby shower that Melissa and I had received, set it on the counter and brought him over to the tub, dropped him in, and I forgot about all his glorious substance. Because when he entered into the water, it just displaced, overflowed, baptized the whole kitchen. And there I was giving Melissa a moment out, a precious moment, and I had soaked the whole kitchen. I'd made a mess. And now I had a screaming baby, splashing water everywhere. It was complete disaster. And friends, this is what happens when something of substance enters into our lives. Things will be displaced in a good way. That things will overflow. And when our Lord Jesus is inserted into our lives and we have that substance, when we're meditating upon his present reality of the King of Kings and we're looking forward to that new horizon, that future, water gets displaced. Praise comes bubbling forth. Doxology is the answer to him who loves us and freed us. That becomes the natural response of the people of God. It's an explosion of praise and thanksgiving, of gratitude and glory. And this is the, the reason why we are taking time to work through this very complicated book. It promises blessing. Blessing through these heavenly visions. And yes, even against Calvin's better judgment, this can shape us and this can transform us as we transfix ourselves upon who he is, upon what he has done on our behalf and who he will be for us. And so let's go with it. Meditate upon these realities. Look at the reality behind all reality. 
and find the confidence and allow that to overflow into praise. Let's allow God to shape us as he walks us into his revelation about Jesus Christ. And so let's entrust ourselves to him. Let's pray. Father, as we set out into treacherous territory, a difficult book, we trust your word that your promise is to bless us. And so bless us in the revelation that is about Jesus Christ and direct us to him. Fill our hearts and our minds with meditation upon him that he is enthroned and that he will soon return making all things right. And may this speak a word of confidence into very unsettled times. Grant this to be the meditation of our heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.